Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Let's get Brexit done. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to The Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who's back in my beloved Bay Area. Today we're joined by Clint Losey, ex-Capitol Hill staffer in Washington, Latosha Brown, one of the co-founders of Black Voters Matter, political commentator and TV pundit Laura Babcock in Hamilton, Ontario, Kyle Condick, managing director of Sabato's Crystal Ball, Derek Perkinson of the National Action Network, Karin Robinson of Democratically 2020, The Pod. Podcast, Doug Levy, writer and pundit from San Francisco, and Mick Wright, journalistic firestarter in Norwich, and by uh, acclaimed author Jarrett Tobeck in LA. In a week that has seen the first storming of the capital since the British took it in 1812, we try and take stock of what happened this week. The Democrats are now set to take control of the U.S. Senate after winning both Senate runoff elections in Georgia. Senior national correspondent Mark Strassman has more from Atlanta. A noisy victory lap for Georgia Democrats Tuesday after handing Republicans a double defeat. I come before you tonight as a proud American and as a son of Georgia. My roots are planted deeply in Georgia soil a child who grew up in the Caton Homes housing projects of Savannah, Georgia, number 11 out of 12 children, a proud graduate of Morehouse College and the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, the spiritual home of Martin Luther King Jr. and Congressman John Lewis. Whether you are for me or against me, I'll be for you in the U.S. Senate. Warnock will be Georgia's first black senator. Ossoff will be the state's first Jewish senator. At 33, he's the youngest elected U.S. senator since Joe Biden. Both Republican candidates led at 11 p.m. on election night. But Metro Atlanta, increasingly progressive, was the game changer. At 11.18 p.m., DeKalb County reported nearly 166,000 votes, catapulting Warnock into the lead. And a few hours later, Ossoff joined him. 
While neither Republican candidate has conceded their race, one of Georgia's top Republican election officials said both Democrats appear to have enough votes to avoid a recount. While Republicans were busy attacking the governor and my boss, uh, the Democrats were out there knocking on doors and getting people to turn out to vote. There's no way we lost Georgia. There's no way. Natosha, you are one of the co-founders of Black Voters Matter. Very obviously, this week we had somewhat of a political earthquake before the political earthquake, which was the storming of the Capitol. First off, could you tell us exactly what Black Voters Matters? I think it does what it says on the tin, but tell us exactly about the organisation and how exactly you got the vote out in Georgia to uh, create the first of the two weeks political earthquakes. So Black Voters Matter is a power building organization. It was founded um, four years ago, almost four years ago from with from myself, by myself and Cliff Albright. We wanted to create an organization that could actually help build the capacity of grassroots groups and to build out the ecosystem. So organizations and groups that are working to build power for their communities, that they could actually do that um, without the, being reliant upon having the best candidate or a political campaign, but that in fact, that their campaign would be centered around the power building of their community. And so in that, we created the organization to be a vehicle to help create investment and expand investment in grassroots groups on the ground to provide them with tools and trainings and so that we would actually build a coordinated campaign of grassroots organizations. And so in the last four years, we've been working throughout the South. Our base is the South. We're based here in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, In the general election, we worked in 15 states um, throughout the country, including Michigan and Pennsylvania uh, and Ohio and and the other states were primarily in the South. But then, of course, Georgia, it came all back to our home state of Georgia. And so while we've continued and been doing work in Georgia because that's our base, in the runoff election, we directed all of our resources in our state. And so the way that we do our work is that we actually support grassroots organizations on the ground and operate and function almost as a coordinated campaign. And then we layer that with our own operation as well to augment that work that's happening in rural areas. There's three kind of things that we do um, that I think kind of distinguishes the work. The first thing that we do is we focus on having a rural strategy. So normally what winds up happening um, politically, you have, you're focusing on these metro centers. And that's what has happened oftentimes in Georgia. And so you focus on metro Atlanta, because the numbers in metro can actually change the state one way or the other. But what we knew is that there were pockets of black voters that lived throughout the state. And that if we were able to mobilize and engage them, that they could offset, even though many of the counties that they lived in, many of their local areas were primarily Republican, that we could actually offset the numbers by having a high turnout in rural areas. Kyle, Could you just quickly jump in and give us a a little bit of an overview of the electorate in in Georgia and why specifically it was so important uh, for uh, Black Votes Matters and for the Democratic Party to mobilize African-American voters? You know, when Joe Biden won the state, you you could see a sort of alliance of voters in the state in that um, Biden did well in Atlanta and also in some of the suburban areas around Atlanta that used to be really Republican, but for a number of reasons have become uh, more Democratic leaning over time. But there also are a fair number of uh, rural black voters across the the state and also uh, across the South. And so mobilizing them is important, too. And what you saw in this election, which had really high turnout, uh, it looks like when it's all said and done, 
the turnout for these Senate runoffs is going to be about 90% of the total presidential turnout, which is really, really good for a non-presidential election. And I think it was befitting the, the, the very high stakes of this runoff in which um, control of the U.S. Senate was at stake. But what you saw in the actual granular results, and I think it speaks well to the um, organizing a- activities that, that that many on on the support Democrats undertook in, in Georgia was that some of the highest turnout places, some of the places that had the you know the higher percentage of of, uh, of the turnout compared to uh, compared to the presidential, were in some uh, you know rural uh, rural black areas, particularly in um, in Southwest Georgia, whereas some of the places where turnout was relatively not quite as good. We're in kind of a white rural working class areas, particularly in northern Georgia. And that sort of differential in turnout is a big part of the reason why Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff won these Senate runoffs. Thank you for that, Carl. Uh, back to you, Latosha. Could you speak to the efforts that specifically your organization had to make to overcome voter suppression. We heard a lot about that a couple of years ago when Stacey Abrams narrowly lost a gubernatorial race. So give us a sense of the voter suppression laws, rules, and um, which were in place and how you actually managed to overcome them. Because there was a black overperformance, there's this kind of narrative that there wasn't voter suppression, that it was equal and um, fair and free access to the ballot. That was not the case in Georgia. This has been a hellious year in in the state of Georgia in terms of starting from the primary, um, where I stood personally in line for over three hours and actually went and assisted others that stood in line for over eight hours at one of the polling polling sites, the African-American polling sites uh, in Union City, Union City, Georgia, people stood in line. The last voter left the line at 1237 a.m. Wednesday. Um, And so that is just how atrocious it was in the in the primary election. You know, if we even go back, I can go back a little bit further than that, which is also, I think, a, 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 a great example of how egregious voter suppression is in the state of Georgia, that we're currently engaged in a lawsuit where we're suing the Secretary of State, Raffensperger, because in October 2019, he dropped 328,000 people from the voting rolls. Now, some of those people actually had died or through attrition or had moved. But what we discovered, we worked with an investigative journalist, Greg Palace, and a team of experts who do data hygiene work for data lists for major Fortune 100 companies like Apple and Amazon and Microsoft, that we discovered that there was 198,000 people who had dropped under the guise of that they had moved, yet there was no evidence. We could find no evidence that that was the case. And matter of fact, when our data hygiene experts checked the list, they discovered that none of those people, there was no evidence. They um, looked at their their addresses and um, put them against 200 different sources. And there was no evidence that they should have been dropped from the voting rolls. And so we reached out to, there was a report that came out in September. We reached out to the Secretary of State's office and said, how did you, and even offered, let your experts sit with our experts and let's figure out how could you be 198,000 votes off to figure out what went wrong? Um, he refused to take us up on that offer and actually defended the fact that they had taken the 198,000 people, uh, dropped them from the voting rolls, right? And these are people just, just recently, you know, we actually 
actually picked up the list and started calling some of those voters. We reached out to 100,000, but we called some of those voters. Just the first week, there were 12 voters that we called. The first one, first person that we called had been living in their home for 27 years. They've never moved. He said, I've never even thought about moving. I don't know how I'm on the list. The second person we called had been in their home for 18 years. So the bottom line is voter suppression is alive in the state of Georgia. It's not well. Grassroots organizers who have worked in an environment where we've had a very, very racially intense um, environment that we worked in where voter suppression is the norm. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not the exception that we have found very sophisticated ways to really be able to navigate through it by the way we organize our community. Even when we're thinking about um, data and we're thinking about turnout, we know that oftentimes we have to overperform to make sure that we offset the voter suppression. And so what you saw in the state of Georgia is you saw an overperformance of black voters. You know, the actual establishment of the runoff system itself was created, quote, to break up the Negro voting bloc. And so this was extraordinary what black folks did, black voters did in the state of Georgia, that they they came out in record numbers. Kyle, back back to you. Would you have any sense of the level of black underperformance because of uh, voter suppression in states where it, that is somewhat prevalent? How much difference would that maybe make to some of the deepest of red states? I don't have a, a great sense of that, and you know, but I, I will say, just generally speaking, that um, black voter turnout. In, in number of states across the country where where the black vote is significant and really black voters are are, are significant in almost all of the key states uh, in, in the electoral college, including a number of the states in the industrial north like Ohio, Michigan and Wisconsin that are um, wider than the national average, but but do have really important pockets of, of, of black voters. But I think in some ways, Barack Obama being on the ballot in 2008 and 2012 did help, I think, increase black turnout in, in a lot of places. And then um, black turnout kind of kind of lagged a little bit. Um, relative to, to 2008 and 2012 in, 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 in 2016 and 2020. But I think that that thinking about that, I think, helps make what happened in Georgia on Tuesday so impressive is that the Republicans did make up a little bit of ground compared to how Biden performed in uh, amongst what, what appears to be kind of affluent white suburbanites. But the extra black turnout, you know, in the, the, the kind of greater share of, of turnout that black voters made up of the electorate on Tuesday compared to back in November, that helped deliver these races for, for Democrats. And, you know, beyond organizing efforts, I think it's useful to think about that, that you know, the Democrats did have, I think, a, a pretty compelling black candidate on the, on the, on the ballot in, in uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock. And there is some, you know, political science research. Again, maybe it seems it seems obvious, but but these things are aren't, aren't always uh, don't always bear out the way that you might think that they would. There is some evidence that having having a, a strong black candidate at the top of the ticket, be it Obama or be it someone like Warnock, can have a positive impact on, on black turnout, as I think it probably did um, uh, in this in this in these runoffs. Latosha, how significant was it that Warnock is uh, going to be the first black senator elected in Georgia? What does it mean to Georgians? What does it mean actually specifically to Black Votes Matters for your sterling efforts? Um, we've been told that it's historic, it's un- unprecedented, but but what does it actually mean to those activists on the ground? So let me just give a little background. You know, I think it's really interesting in the state of Georgia, this is a state that has never sent an African-American to the Senate. This is a state that has uh, one of the states that has been a stalwart in, as it relates to being a Confederate state, that it, it has proudly 
um, worn the Confederate flag until till a recent years that it has been really a, a central power space for for white Southern, the Southern strategy and white Southern power. And so in a state such as this, you know, in a state where you have a minister, a black preacher, who is the minister of the historic Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is the, the church, that's the home church of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his family, who grew up as one of 12 children from a war poor working class um, family, actually toppled the wealthiest congressperson in DC. You know, that in itself is pretty profound just in terms of the whole argument around electability. The second thing though, I think is really important and critical is that he is also someone that actually comes out of the faith tradition. What we have seen in recent years is that what I call Confederate Christianity, you know, there has been a, it's literally hijacked the whole faith tradition and politics. That when we're talking about faith and politics, it has been dominated by by um, this this white, very right wing kind of Christian um, Christian group, and so here it is that there's an African American preacher that comes out of the faith tradition, which is actually rooted in social justice in the African American community. So for him to win, it's also another win for those uh, a part of the tradition of in in the in the South that has actually come up against fighting against these structures, um, these racist structures, and then so overall, what I think is a state like Georgia when we're looking at currently right now, 4 million people have uh, applied for unemployment. We're looking at a state like Georgia that the African-American population at the height of COVID-19 in April, 80% of all hospitalizations in, that were COVID-related in the state were African-Americans, although we make only 30% of the population. That when you're looking at some of the critical issues that our community has faced and is dealing with, and you're looking at for the lack of leadership that we've seen from our, our state leadership from the governor's office and from the president, particularly as it relates to COVID-19, COVID-19, having Raphael Warnock in that position that actually has an experience from our community, he comes from our community, he comes from the rich, prophetic, um, Black the theological um, liberation tradition, I think that means a lot for us to also have the young, to be able to send the youngest senator who will be Senator Ossoff, uh, Senator-elect Ossoff, who also happens to be a Jewish man from the South, that in itself also blows up this whole argument around electability in the Deep South. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Oh, the land of the free. Let's have trial by combat. Now it is up to Congress to confront this egregious assault on our democracy. And after this, we're going to walk down, and I'll be there with you, and we're going to walk down to the Capitol. And we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women. I know you're pain. I know you're hurt. We had an election that was stolen from us. It was a landslide election, but you have to go home now. We have to have peace. It's a very tough period of time. There's never been a time like this where such a thing happened, where they could take it away from all of us, from me, from you, from our country. This was a fraudulent election. So go home. We love you. You're very special. You've seen what happens. You see the way others are treated that are so bad and so evil. I know how you feel. Now, we brought that to you because President Trump on the tape says to his supporters who are right now conducting an armed insurrection on the U.S. Capitol, he tells them to go home. But I also want to note that in that video, he lies about the election being stolen and pours more fuel on the fire. Here's Senator Mitt Romney, one of the first and only Republican voices to condemn the events of today as being on Trump's head. I'm proud to be a member of the United States Senate. Now we gather due to a selfish man's injured pride and the outrage of supporters who he has deliberately misinformed for the past two months and stirred to action this very morning. What happened here today was an insurrection incited by the President of the United States. Those who choose to continue to support his dangerous gambit by objecting to the results of a legitimate democratic election will forever be seen as being complicit in an unprecedented attack against our democracy. Fairly or not, they'll be remembered for their role in this shameful episode in American history. That will be their legacy. For any who remain insistent on an audit in order to satisfy the many people who believe that the election was stolen, I'd offer this perspective. No congressional audit is ever going to convince these voters, particularly when the president will continue to say that the election was stolen. The best way we can show respect for the voters who are upset is by telling them the truth. That's the burden. That's the duty of leadership. The truth is that President-elect Biden won the election. President Trump lost. Scores of courts, the president's own attorney general, state election officials, both Republican and Democrat, have reached that unequivocal decision. And in light of today's sad circumstances, I ask my colleague, do we weigh our own political fortunes more heavily than we weigh the strength of our republic and the cause of freedom? What's the weight of personal acclaim compared to the weight of conscience? Joseph R. Biden, Jr of the state of Delaware has received 306 votes. Donald J. Trump of the state of Florida 
has received 232 votes. Overnight, Congress certifying the 2020 election results, declaring Joe Biden as the 46th president of the United States. Trump and I, we've had a hell of a journey. I hate it being this way. Oh my God, I hate it. All I can say is uh, count me out. Enough is enough. Tried to be helpful. When it's over, it is over. It is over. Very obviously, we had unprecedented scenes in the Capitol on Wednesday. Uh, Clint Losey, you're an ex-Capitol Hill staffer, so I'm going to come to you first. How predictable, after the rhetoric which we've seen from Trump in the last four years, was that his presidency was going to end with something like this? Utterly predictable. Um, Anyone who's shocked by this hasn't been paying attention. Um, It was still surprising to see, though. It's, It's just such a a break from norms um, and the usual restraint and and the you know kind of the decency of American politics as ugly as it has been, um, it just it just crossed a crossed a line that hasn't really been crossed I think in modern memory at least for a lot of us who've been in D.C. for for a number of years. So, but it, but it is entirely the uh, the result of of Trump uh, uh, being enabled by the Republicans to whip up folks like this. Mick, you're over there in Norwich in the UK, so you're one of our seasoned uh, watches of, of American politics from beyond American shores. How exactly has did this all play out in the British media? How how was Britain, how was the world, your proxy for the world now uh, here, uh, looking at these events of America? And what do you think it said about America? Well, I, I think it was interesting how it played out in, in the British press, because the British press is um, over represented on the right wing and and a lot of people on the right wing in the British press had been pretty pro-Trump and had written quite a lot of pro-Trump things and are now uh, reversing at high speed and uh, and changing their changing their view or, or, or trying to pretend things they wrote uh, didn't exist. Um, obviously, people were, were shocked by it. I think. I think also it was interesting to see that um, because we have a a press like uh, much of the U.S. press, which is um, always willing and always tries to underplay white supremacy, fascism, um, hard right. Uh, politics in general, there was a lot of um, avoidance of of words like rioters and 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 terror and and domestic terror and all these kind of things. Which had these, uh, you know, had the people who stormed the Capitol been of a different uh, religious or or um, ethnic background, certainly it would have been framed in a different way. So while there was shock and while it was presented in it, as like this is in, this is incredible, this is insane, it was also I felt clearly doing a lot of water carrying um, for white supremacy. But then that's a problem our press has here. I couldn't help but notice, Latosha, looking at the way of which uh, the Capitol Police, at least some of the Capitol Police, uh, enabled that uh, demonstration and allowed the protesters to get all the way to the doors of the Capitol building. That, um, as Mick said, if if this had been a Black Lives Matters protest, it would have been somewhat different. Was one of the stunning aspects of the uh, what we saw on Wednesday an expression of white American privilege when it comes to confronting and protesting in air quotes against the American state? So I think there's three quick points. The first point is a, a Black Lives Matters 
uh, protesters never would have been able to get to that point, <laughs> right? They never would have been able to even get on the grounds. I've been on the grounds myself and set, and been still checking my cell phone and been approached by security saying, ma'am, you need to move along. So the, the, the mere fact that they were actually able to get on actually speaks to something different, um, um, different as well, because I actually don't think that it was just a, anybody who's been in DC knows that that is the most secured ground in this country. So for them to get an advance where they got, that was not just an outside, uh, outside, we didn't have enough people. That was something that there was some complicitness around of law enforcement in within that. And I think that will come out um, in the watch. The second thing is I think that it also speaks to a larger issue, which spurred the, the Black Lives Matter movement earlier this year and around the movement around defund the message around defund the police. Because what it seems very apparent is that police in this country, which was formed, quite frankly, was formed out of slave patrols. That's how the, the very founding of the police, that it has one purpose, and that is to ma the, uh, the management and control of people of color and poor people, because it can't be about uh, keeping peace and order. That is not what we saw. If you actually look at some of the video, you can actually see the police literally holding the hand of a protester walking, not a protester of a seditionist walking down, um, walking down the stairs. There were officers within this Capitol that as the, the place was being torn up, they were taking selfies, you know, so we know that there is something much deeper at this. And I think it will come out in the wash. And the third and the final thing is that it is apparent. Like we can stop with this idea of, you know, whether it be different, we all know it would be different, right? We all know, I think it points to something greater around how we value human life and what human life is valued. But also when we're looking at who is violent and who has been violent to who in this country and who really is standing on Tuesday, I think you saw a demonstration of black citizens white citizens, Latino citizens, a rainbow coalition of people in this country that and led by, quite frankly, a lot of that energy led by black black voters that literally said that we believe in democracy and peace, right? Yet you saw the next day, and I think that grows out of white privilege is this idea of that we can actually control and destroy. And then part of that is the, the fear of that. And I think that what some people are seeing now, some of the Republicans are starting to understand is that evil and hatred cannot be contained. And so now that once you're thinking that as long as that's directed at black people, it is okay. And that fire continues to grow, to grow and grow. And all of a sudden, what it will do, it will actually consume this country if it is not put out and extinguished. Amen to that, sister. Uh, very, very powerfully said. Uh, Doug Levy, I didn't realize that the Capitol Hill police ha had actually been defunded because they didn't sh uh, exactly pull out their weapons against these protesters. So, who knew? Who knew that under a Trump administration that defund the police was going to have such profound effects? It is really stunning. I, as, as I think you know, I've worked with law enforcement in my emergency management role over the years, and I, I truly can't explain. Incompetence doesn't explain what happened. Um, the, the failure of planning or the absence of planning or the planning, whatever it was, was completely wrong. And I think we ha all can suspect why. There has to be more to it than we currently know. Jared, you're a deep thinker. You look at uh, the... Supposedly. You, you like to analyze the, the dark underbelly of America and, and its psyche, but also of humanity. What does this tell us? on a deeply philosophical level about the Trump years. We've had Trump ripping up norms. He's done it quite literally in the end. 
I always feel like one of those mid-century liberals who sees something happen and can only see the various processes that lead into it. I mean, I think the answer is what the answer has always been. Trump, the Trump era is a manifestation of a series of very long running processes in this society that have come to a horrible fruition. That's what it looked like to me. I mean, it looked like everything else. It looked like the obvious things to me. But if you look at the people who are showing up, that is, those people are the product of a lot of really unchecked things that have been allowed, allowed to fester in American life. And some of those things have had tacit approval from a lot of different sectors. This is what happens when you convert the entire society over. Derek, you obviously work for the Action National Network. You guys are kind of preeminent when it comes to to organizing. Tell us if you guys had been organizing a a rally, what conversations you would have had with law enforcement beforehand. Latasha Brown, you my hero. I salute you, sister. And, and, your, and your team over there in Georgia and all the work you've done. So I'm glad you asked that, Rofield, only because that I'm Derek Perkins with the National Action Network organization started 30 years this year. Right in August, we did 250,000 person march on Washington in commemoration of the Dr. King March in 63. We had to go through hoops to get the Capitol Police and the parks over there to get these permits and, and credentials to get on there. That's why we know something more deeper and sinister is at play here because you cannot go there and protest. You cannot gather in that space unless you have the proper credentials. You cannot carry a, a pole. You can't have a sign, a sign with a stick up unless you have proper certification and they won't even let you have a sign with a stick. So we, we know things are at play. We had to go through the ringer to get our permits and different certifications for the march in August 28th. And we, we're just looking at this like everybody else, but we know there's some sinister play, some sinister things at hand here. I mean, again, we, we, we stay saying systemic, right? Systemic, systemic. People get mad when we say that. But when you see the Capitol Police moving the barricades over to let people in, when you see them taking selfies with trespassers, people who's breaking the law, you have to ask yourself, is something more deeper that's going on here? So, you know, I'm not really a proponent of defund police, blow up the system and, and all of these other things that's going on. But it needs to be a deep cleansing in our law enforcement agencies nationwide, starting from the local level right on up. Karen, I'm going to come over to you. Has this been the last impotent spasm of Trumpism? Can we now uh, wash our hands of it and say amen to that? Can we turn over a new leaf? It's a Biden administration. Well, no. I mean, quite obviously, no. So I can expand on that. And I would really like to, because one of the things I, I'm very keen that we do in this conversation is to put squarely in the president's lap the responsibility that he personally bears. We have systemic problems. We have potentially complicity by law enforcement. We have lots of problems with um, the behavior of everybody from legislators down to, down to individual citizens on the street. But I was going through the timeline of, of Wednesday's events um, for my podcast this week, and the president himself stood up at a rally in front of 30,000 of his most fervent supporters on Wednesday morning, uh, 10 to 12, 10 to noon, he started to speak. 
He was speaking until just before one o'clock, um, spoke a little over an hour. He spoke. Um, he concluded his remarks by saying, now let's walk up to Pennsylvania Avenue to where the Capitol building is. And let's show, basically, let's have a show of strength. Com- his supporters complied with his request. And by the end, by, you know, 2.20 in the afternoon, they had penetrated the, the the congressional building and were basically terrorizing the nation. He directed his supporters to commit an act of sedition and domestic terrorism against the lawmakers of his own government. He did this because, frankly, I don't think that he has a specific plan to take over the U.S. government. I think it's worse than that. He's weak and flailing and and pitiful and yet still extremely successful because he has successfully taken over one of the two political parties in the United States of America. And he will continue to exert enormous power in the Republican Party, but not because of the behavior of legislators, but because of the behavior of voters. Karin, you say it's not it's not because of legislators, it's because of the voters. But so many of the legislators have been complicit. We had Ted Cruz, you know, somebody who Donald Trump tore a strip off when he was running to, to be um, a Republican candidate, you know, impugned his wife. We, we had Josh Hawley, you know, giving the fists up. These guys are all complicit as well, aren't they? So of course they're complicit, but I guess I guess my point that I would make is they're cowards and traitors. However, they are also rational beings responding to the incentives ahead of them. You can be both, right? It is completely logical for them to behave in the way that they are, and the way that they're behaving is also shameful. Laura, we have, we haven't heard from you. One of the I think poetic things about what Trump did on Wednesday was to say. I will be with you when you go, when you walk down to the Capitol building. Then he got into his armor plated car and drove off in the opposite direction. Isn't this just like a writ in neon sign, the vacuousy of, of Trumpism, how disingenuous Trump has actually been to his supporters? I see it very differently. I don't think he's weak at all. I think the evidence suggests he's incredibly powerful. It wasn't since the British and the Canadians, you know, in 1812 were down there that this has happened. Uh, he's very powerful and he runs essentially his own terrorist group, his own militia, his own army, whatever you want to call that, whatever we saw. It was alien to anything that we have seen in hundreds of years. In fact, it reminded me of that scene in World War Z when they crawl up the wall, all the aliens on top of each other. It was beyond. And here in Canada, we watched it. And there was that moment around 4.30 Eastern Standard Time where I felt like we were waiting, you know, when the when the planes were after they hit the World Trade Center and then towers, and then we were waiting and they hit the Pentagon, that moment when we didn't know if America would survive, we thought it was going to collapse. It was incredibly jarring. And Canadians were very involved in 9-11 in the days following in terms of taking flights in and everything else. So for Canadians, it was very, very traumatic to watch. And I think he's very powerful. And I didn't see that as him being cowardly. I saw that as coded messaging. When he said, walk down there and I'll be with you, maybe, just maybe, that was him indicating that, don't worry, I got people there who are going to help you with this, right? Which is what we've all been talking about, the complicity and the fact that how do you open gates and open doors? How do you let people in and take selfies with them unless there's some sort of complicity there? So I think code that was code. And if you look at the through thread, language is my business. If you look at the through narrative of every statement he has made at that speech and, and on Twitter, and then subsequently the video, everything has had the singular narrative of endurance. 
all of them have ended, no matter what he said, they've all ended with, I'll be with you. We continue. We are strong. We'll keep going. Even the one that people were championing last night as being some kind of concession speech. He talked about how they would continue to be powerful. So let's let's just, just get rid of this notion that Trump is some sort of weak loser. Trump is winning. And that was a win for him January 6th. And we've got to do everything we can to stop it and stop it in Canada because we've got the same issue here. I got a fun fact. Really quick, really quick. 1954, Puerto Rican hero named Lolita LeBron stormed the U.S. House of Representatives. They gave her 49 years. She served 25 years. So that's precedent for these people that stormed that. And, and they're trying to call a mob. They were um, domestic terrorists. There were explosive devices found there. Five people died. So let's not lose sight of those things. Thank you for that. Uh, thank you for giving us that little bit of a, a history lesson. Uh, Clint, we have had uh, we had two members of Trump's cabinet resign. Uh, we've had other lesser luminaries of the ad administration uh, walk away. How significant should we take these resignations? They are significant in the way that rats fleeing a sinking ship are significant. Um, these are folks who are going to try to get jobs in a post-Trump world. Um, and they are going to have to find a way to make themselves palatable in the event that like we do claw ourselves back to some sense of normalcy and decency. Uh, you know, we can't get all the way back, but, but, but when we get back to something a little bit more normal, these are people who are going to want to be on boards. They're going to be want to be in positions of power. And so they are finally throwing in the towel because this is a bridge too far. Uh, not not morally, I don't suspect, but uh, in terms of their future uh, prospects as uh, employees. Kyle, obviously, we saw several thousand Trump supporters outside that Capitol building. Then they stormed it. Um, a woman was shot dead by Capitol Police, etc. How significant of the Republican Party, let's say the Republican coalition, do you think this Trump base is? I think a lot of people who voted for the president are basically just rank and file Republicans who, you know, would, would vote for basically any Republican over any Democrat. And look, I think there are a lot of Democratic voters who are the same way. We're in a, a period of, of very high party loyalty in the United States, um, very similar actually to the late 1800s. It was also a time where there wasn't much ticket splitting. There was a lot of, a lot of party loyalty. But at the same time, I think you also saw that there are a lot of people who see Trump as as sort of this. Uh, um, it's, it's almost like a cult figure, and there is cult followers, um, and that there. I think through a lot of kind of internet conspiracy theories, QAnon is one is, is I think maybe the most prominent one. Um, that uh, th there's something more than that, and they were you know they were expressing themselves, and some of these people I think are, are attempting to do violence. I mean, for as bad as what happened was, and it was horrible. It was I, I think it may have been the worst thing I'd ever seen since 9-11 in terms of basically a national scar, it could have been a lot worse because you had these people who were armed who supposedly were looking for Vice President Pence, who were looking for the Speaker of the House. And you, you just wonder if, if something like this will happen again and if, it, if it'll be even worse um, next time. And the president was definitely egging those, those folks on. Jared, over to you. Kyle mentioned Mike Pence. Uh, the president put uh, a target on his back, definitely in the minds, at least, of his uh, acolytes, of his, his followers, definitely with the speech that he gave uh, before they went and stormed the Capitol. And Mike Pence, by all accounts, was the, the member of the government who actually called out the National Guard. And Mike Pence did tell Trump, no, I'm going to do my ceremonial duty. There is, there, I'm not going to stop due process. Is Mike Pence now 
the acting president of the United States, at least for the next, what, 12 days? Who can say? I mean, no one knows, right? That that's part of this moment, which is it's all chaos. We and we have to live in this chaos. I don't know. Pence is one of those people where you can see what the wages of sin actually are. All the ambition, all the greed that made him become accept that role, which he didn't have to accept as Trump's vice president. Now it has come to weigh upon him. You know, that's the moment he's in. And I think what we're seeing is him trying to salvage whatever it means to be Mike Pence. But he's a chief enabler of all of it. Mick, there's been some talk that uh, the 25th Amendment should be invoked. Obviously, if that is going to be invoked, Mike Pence would be central to that. Should we just ride out the next, what, week plus with this uh, crazy man in the White House? Or should the American government, should the American system eject him for the remaining days of his presidency? Well, I'm not a constitutional expert, but um, the way I see it is I think that the 25th is not going to happen um, for a number of reasons, including I haven't, I, I think there is no way that Pence wants to be president for a number of days. He does still have in his mind some sense that he might run in 2024. So it would be, it would be really damaging to him to be this Potemkin president for a number of days. The other thing I'd say is like, okay, Nancy Pelosi is saying she's going to, uh, is, is pushing forward with, with, with moving towards some kind of impeachment process. Like, I don't know if they can turn that around quick enough. Um, it's, it is really grandstanding when she says stuff like I've spoken to the military about preventing Trump from having access to the new, to, to the nuclear codes or, or, or for orders to be followed down because currently that the law in the law Trump is has control of these things there's the mechanisms are there but these mechanisms don't work quick enough the other thing I just wanted to say was in in 1923 the beer hall putsch in in Munich uh, when 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 Hitler's followers did the beer hall putsch the international um uh, coverage of it and the coverage in germany was look at this clown look at these guys this was clownish this coup didn't happen this coup didn't work there's a there's a very sort of milk toast centrist publication called tortoise over here in the uk and they wrote oh well look it's not a coup because they didn't do this that and the other the things that you need to do a coup just because they fucked it up doesn't mean that it wasn't an attempt uh, a very serious attempt to do something. And 10 years after the beer hall putsch, Hitler took power in Germany. Now, will that be Trump retaking power? Pro- probably not. But the right, the, the right wing, the white supremacist fascist ideology that is at the heart of what's happening now, uh, it will stay and thrive. And, and the notion that the grown-ups are back in the room and Biden can fix it all is for the birds. Let's go with that thought. Tucker Carlson, one of Trump's uh, key uh, proponents for the last four years, said this. He's reached his shelf life and he and he being Tucker Carlson and blamed him for inciting uh, the riot at the US Capitol, uh, the sedition, let's call it that. But he said the word riot and that Trump has recklessly encouraged his supporters and he's reached his expiration date. Laura, doesn't that mean that the right wing are turning away from Trump and Trumpism. We can all breathe a sigh of relief. Tucker Carlson said so. 
<laughs> no, it means Tucker is lining himself up to be the head of the ticket in 2024, and he's trying to bring everyone over. They will sacrifice Trump to keep his army and to get back into power. Uh, so no, I don't take that at face value at all. And moreover, if you even look at some of the narratives that Fox has been pushing out, they've been pushing out the idea that, you know, the really bad ones, the ones who really upset everybody were Antifa, you know, snuck in there into this whole thing. And, and of course, it's laughable to all of us, but I caution again, you know, this felt like a 9-11 event from people outside of America, at least from the Canadian view. And if there is not a 9-11 level response, you know, that will smoke them out of the caves equivalent or whatever that's going to be. I just heard Biden speak and Biden was all their domestic terrorists and they'll be prosecuted or persecuted, whatever. But we need to have a moment for the world that says, no, no, America's got this. They're going to reestablish their authority over this problem. And if that doesn't happen soon, yeah, of course, no 25th Amendment's going to happen. Impeachment might, will be a show and it may or may not result in anything. Uh, but there has to be a really big response because this narrative of it wasn't as bad as it looked and the bad guys weren't us. And it is being seen as a win in the Republican circles. And it's being seen as a win in the right wing circles. And it is getting recruitment going. There were celebrations in Canada from right wing groups on this. We can't pretend this was a failure. It wasn't to their cause. They were seen celebrating. There's video of Trump's family celebrating this. So there'll be some fallout on Trump, but don't think for a second that it has done anything to really damage those extreme Tucker Carlson ends of the Republican Party. This is the kind of fuel they want for 2024. Doug Levy. So basically, Josh Hawley, this is the start of his campaign for 2024. Ted Cruz and him are going to duke it out, are they, over the dead, rotting corpse of uh, the old Republican Party? I hope that's not the case. I do think that Hawley in particular has been targeted for shame because of the way he conducted himself after the riot and deserves it. And, and his whiny post complaining that his book contract got canceled. My God, that was just despicable. And I also think that people understand that he's a Ivy League trained lawyer, as is Ted Cruz. And what he was claiming from a standpoint of the law was BS. I think he was just grandstanding, and I don't think it's going to work because he actually isn't as slick as he thinks he is. Tucker Carlson, though, I think we do need to worry about because Tucker Carlson, while decrying the riot, was also defending the people who rioted indirectly. What we saw was thousands of white Republican Trump supporters taking what they believed they were entitled to, just as Trump grabs them by the whatever because he thinks he's entitled to it. it, it and you have it, Tucker Carlson getting on TV defending that. These people are angry because... Get, I think you're, you're completely right. Should we then venerate exactly what the senator from Utah said, which is that we need to tell people the truth? That would be a really good starting point. But how do we do that when we have 74 million Americans who are immune to the truth? And in fact, uh, the polling data that I've seen since Wednesday shows that a majority of Republicans still think the election was stolen. They, they have a right to be upset. What Trump has succeeded in doing is destabilizing the American government. 
Doug, thank you for that contribution. Derek, from January the 20th, there is going to be a new president. Whether we have an interim president before, only time will tell. How should we deal with President Trump, with ex-President Trump? That's a good question. That's going to be tough. Um, He has a lot of options at his hand. Before he ran for president, he was doing stints on The Apprentice for 10, 15 years. So he's going to have a lot of opportunities to do things. But you guys forget this. He's going to be dogged by multiple lawsuits when he leaves office. He'll be fighting these lawsuits to the day he dies. And that's just a fact of life. So when you say how to deal with him, society will deal with him. New York, I know the special, uh, the Northern District, New York, Southern District has some lawsuits coming. I know some other places that have lawsuits. He will be dogged for his remainder uh, time out of office. He's going to fight him until he passes. Um, that's usually how these things work. But um, how do we deal with the 70 million people, 72 million people that support him? How do we deal with the uh, Trump fanatics who believe the lies, who believe the, the election was stolen? That's something we're all going to have to figure out. But we're going to have to pass real laws, real policy that's going to incriminate people for um, for at minor acts of, 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 of racism, discrimination. Um, and stuff like that. So we have to really elect people in office that's going to do right by us. We can't get sidetracked by the Trump supporters. Like Trump said, he's on Fifth Avenue. If he shoots someone, he's get away with it. His people will still love him. They're still going to love him. Kyle, is that still true? In Surely this storming of the Capitol was the equivalent of Trump trying to deliver on his boast that he can uh, shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue. He tried to shoot the American Republic he didn't succeed. So surely Trump isn't quite as omnipotent as we all said. How do we tell truth to those Trump supporters that actually not only is he a shaman of fraud, but key specifically in this instance that the election was not stolen? How do we do that? It does seem like some Republican elites at least are kind of distancing themselves here at the end. Now, of course, I guess it's easier to do so given that he lost the election, that the Electoral College, you know, results are now certified. Joe Biden's going to take over on January 20th. But, you know, the key question is, is, you know, does does Trump run again in the future? And what sort of support does he get from the rank and file if he does? I mean, I'm assuming if you you take a poll today and ask Republican voters, hey, who do you support for the next Republican nomination in 2024? Trump would probably lead the list. Uh, Now, some of that is just, you know, name identification and whatnot and and goodwill, at least on the Republican voters. But if you were to run, could he be defeated in a primary? Could the Republican elites bring the voters along? You know, part of the whole reason that Trump got nominated was that Republican base voters had come to really hate their own elites in their party. In some ways, if Trump was opposed by leadership, that might actually make him an even more potent force in the Republican Party. Whether there's lingering damage from this, I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, there's been so many outrageous things that have happened since Trump came down, you know, the the uh, the escalator in Trump Tower in 2015. And yet his support amongst Republicans has really been very strong throughout much of that period. So um, I don't I don't you know, there may not be an answer here. And it may be that that Trump is going to continue to be with us and continue to be kind of the de facto head of the Republican Party. Clint, many people are speculating that we are going to see the end of 
this version of the Republican Party. Um, where do you stand with that analysis? What, can we see the right politically in America splitting off? We have had hints of this beforehand. We've had the Tea Party, etc., which wasn't a separate party, but a faction of which uh, the Trump base seems to be fundamentally composed of those Tea Party kind of elements. Uh, where next for the Republican Party, sir? So that's hard to say. Uh because I think they're going to have to spend a little bit of time fighting each other for it. Um, and hopefully the, uh, hopefully the, the centrist Republicans win. They're the, the least worst, the least bad um, of the lot. And maybe they, can, maybe they can drag the base over the course of the next many, many years back into some sense of reality. Um, but I do think that you're just going to see a split, not so much uh, for control, but I think you're going to see the rump of the, the Trump segment of the party just become even more radicalized. I, I think that's going to be the real problem is that is that a lot of uh, Republicans will kind of put Trump behind them. They'll want to get on with things. Uh, but but there's just going to be a segment of the party that is uh, is going to look back on January 6th as their lost cause. Um, and they are gonna, they're gonna celebrate this day, um, every year. And it's gonna be one of those things where the FBI, every January 6th is gonna be on the lookout for domestic right wing terrorists who are, are gonna try and, uh, try and reclaim this day. Deary me, Clint, it's almost the end of the show and, and, and I want to bring us up and, and you're worrying the hell out of me even more, sir. Uh, Jared. We have the Democratic Party in control of all three branches of government now. Surely uh, this is a kumbaya moment in terms of those on the left saying we can push through some kind of level of radical change or those centrist senators, are they the true power brokers of American politics, at least for the next uh, two years? whether it is this, the senator, the Democratic senator from West uh, Virginia through to Susan Collins in Maine, etc. Um, is this a victory for the left or the center? I would hope that it's a victory for the left. My assumption is that it's probably going to be a victory from the center. I, I mean, we've had a 50-50 split in the Senate in relatively recent memory. And that was pretty dysfunctional. But who knows? You know, I, I'm trying to keep an open mind about all of this. Maybe the promises finally get delivered, but we'll see. Mick, let's put coronavirus to one side and, and, and get to making sure that those vaccines get out to the states. Let's say that that's going to happen, right? Uh, what should be top of President Biden's intray? Tell me two things he should uh, attend to first. Uh, healthcare and poverty. That if you want to disempower the far right, then you need to make sure that that, that poor people of all colours are, are are better off and 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 feel that the state does things for them, and it doesn't leave a position where where uh, right wing demagogues can can make these wild promises because it just seems like no one cares. There's a huge problem, I think, when I look at someone like Nancy Pelosi who says things about two thousand dollar stimulus checks. And, and and about how it doesn't it's not really that much money or whatever it's like it, it, there is a disconnection and there's a disconnection in the democratic elite uh which, which was a problem it was a problem under obama and, and it will still be a problem under biden unless they seriously start to rethink the way they they address poverty and the causes of of discontent and healthcare because america is a sick country 
People are not well. Like if I get sick here, if I get cancer, I probably won't. I, there's a high chance I won't die because the NHS will give me treatment. It doesn't ruin my life financially to, to, to get sick, but it does in America. That's a bizarre country. And that's one of the biggest issues for me. I could never move to America for that reason. Karin, um, how impressed have you been with the utterances from the president-elect this week? To me, at least he sounded somewhat presidential. I think Joe Biden said the right things. I think he he meant the right things also. I think, you know, he's somebody who he got into the race in the first place um, following Charlottesville, having been appalled by President Trump's behavior. And I think what we saw on Wednesday was the culmination of exactly um, what Joe Biden is here to oppose. I think it's also true that Joe Biden is someone who has a real reverence for the Senate as an institution. And so I think for him, it was uh, unacceptable to see what happened um, uh, on Wednesday. He still has a really tough job ahead of him. Um, it is fantastic that we have taken back the Senate. That makes it possible for Joe Biden to govern. It wasn't clear um, until we knew the outcome of Georgia how easy it would be for him to even appoint a cabinet, whether he would be able to get any legislation even on the Senate floor, let alone passed. Um, so he has the opportunity to govern now, and I think that's fantastic. I think you know just the just the fact that the country has a chance of getting its problems solved for the past. Four Four years, whatever problems the country's had, it hasn't been possible to move anything forward, um, good, bad, or indifferent. So, um, so I think you know Joe Biden is is on the right step to do a lot of the right things. It won't be everything I've dreamed of, um, of course, but I think you know anything is better than what we've had before, what we've had over the last few years. And I actually genuinely, I have decided to feel good today. I've decided to believe that uh, that that there is possibility for change in America because. They wouldn't be so angry if they didn't feel threatened on the other side. They they see that um, their power is waning. Uh, Democrats have a, have an opportunity now. We've got a couple of years before the midterm elections to show the American people what we can do. And we actually have the ability to make that change. Thank you for uh, bringing us up. Uh, one <laughs> last question. I'm going to put this to everybody. This inauguration speech by... Uh, President Biden needs to be the most powerful statement that America has had delivered to it since the end of the Second World War. Since FDR delivered that wonderful uh, speech just after D-Day saying that American men were going to liberate Europe. This is how important this moment is. I'm going to ask you uh, one by one, tell me one or two words that President Biden needs to put in this in his inauguration speech for America to recognize the last four years, but to turn the page on that and to look forward. Laura Babcock. He's got to mention healing, because not only does that cover the whole issue around COVID and the immediate concern of everyone, but that is really why he decided to run, was to heal the nation and to get it back to where he thinks it should be. And he has to mention building, which is part of his Build Back Better, this whole idea of the economy. Because there is right now, I think, millions out of that 75 million that voted for Trump that right now don't want to become part of that Trump party that they saw the other day. And if he can bring them over with kind of an economic message, one that they think they can relate to and that they can feel can really make them more financially viable, that is going to be a winning message for him. And when you have major unions or major trade organizations like the manufacturers calling for Trump to step down, that means there's an opportunity for Biden to really bring big business in and to really get the sense that he is going to be the president that will rebuild America. The idea of that big build idea, I think, is critical. 
Jarrett, you're a man who's made his uh, money out of prose, sir. So I reckon if anyone could give good speech, it was you. So imagine you're one of Biden's uh, scriptwriters. I wouldn't take that job. I, I, I don't have an okay. answer to this I'm question. I'm putting that job on you now. <clears throat> so go. What, what crime did I commit to have this job? I, I couldn't do it. You were born you know? an American citizen, sir. So you have skin yeah. in the game. I do have skin in the game. I, I really don't know because what you're talking about is a message that has to be filtered through a persona. And can that persona really speak to the moment? I, I don't have a lot of faith in that. I, I got to say. This is I, not the I'm, way I wonder when this podcast. So. I believe <laughs> you held your hand up. Go. He has to keep doing what he's been doing, which is stay very close to the center. Talk about healing, as Laura mentioned. But he also has to really make it clear that he hears you. He's listening. Right. He understands why people are angry. Karen. Uh, so I think Joe Biden's best moments of rhetoric are when he speaks from the heart um, and his personal story of um, grief and loss has something that has carried him through his entire career. So I think he's in a really good position to to bring his personal story, to talk about the grief and trauma that the country is going through. And to Laura's point, certainly talk about healing, um, but talk about it in a way that that's filtered through his own life story and making a connection to the American people. That's kind of what he's been doing on the campaign trail. And it's been it's been really effective. I think he can now build that into kind of a bigger story about kind of where we can go once we've uh, once we've once we've I, I, I don't want to sound too cynical, but being a Brit listening to American politicians give speeches. They always do that, don't they? You know, the, the, the little homily about their own kind of personal life. And yeah, but they do it because it works. Uh, Clint, you held your hand up. You're, you're going to knock the ball out of the park before we come on to Kyle. I think, I think it's not going to be enough for Biden to talk about just healing and overcoming politics. He's going to have to talk about it in a way that's so much bigger than anyone has really talked about coming together nationally ever before. It's not just about overcoming politics. It's about really getting to an entirely new place um, as a nation that, that bridges this gap. It's not about papering over the gap between the parties. It is really about moving everybody to kind of a new plane of political existence, as it were, um, and, and I think that that's kind of going to have to be the note because it's not going to be sufficient to say, let's hold hands um, and, and, and get together and like, you know, go back to the old days. He has to, I think he has to chart a path forward to, to an exciting new place for, uh, for people to believe in. Kyle, I know you're a man that fundamentally you look at numbers and statistics, but uh, you're going to have to put the numbers to one side now, right? Uh, you are, you're in that uh, vice, you're in that uh, president-elect uh, script writing team, and they want a knockout line or so, uh, which is going to help infuse and to transform the nation of your birth. What do you put on that piece of paper, Kyle? Well, I don't know what I put on the piece of paper, but I would say that the Democrats sometimes, I think, have trouble basically articulating a, a case for national greatness, essentially. And I think that I personally, and I'm feeling like a lot know, of people... No, but that Kennedy was all about, you well, know, but, the, yeah, but that was also, the moon because it's also, there, that, that's national decades, greatness, surely. That was, dec that was decades and decades ago. And whatever you want to say about Trump, you know, he did have this this sort of theme of national restoration, I guess. you know, American carnage, and he delivered on well, it, didn't he? I mean, look, I'm, and I'm not defending the president's rhetoric or anything, but I do think that 
if, if Biden is going to have sustaining success for the Democratic Party, he needs to not for Democrats not to get killed in the 2022 elections and keeping the energy level of Democratic base high is something he needs to do. How do you do that, Kyle? How are you going to do that? Come on, get us pumped, Kyle. That's what he needs to do. I don't know if he can he can do it or not. But, you know, the Democrats aren't going to have Trump necessarily to to keep their party unified and to keep themselves engaged. Although, who knows, the president might be hanging around so much that that he uh, he, he keeps the Democrats energy level high. I tell you who needs to keep their energy levels high on Sunday. It's the Cleveland Browns, because, you know, we have not been in the playoffs since uh, 2002. And Kyle, uh, like me, is a fellow Browns fan. So uh, go dog pound. Uh, Mick Wright. Exactly. Mick Wright. Well, firstly, I think that American politics, one of its biggest problems is this obsession with rhetoric and the the gulf between rhetoric and reality, right? This is not the West Wing. Whoa, 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 sunshine. You asked me the question. Let me finish it. Right. So... Uh, I, 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 there's too many people who want a President Bartlett, right? And and I think actually that there could be something from a speech that says, I understand the realities here. I understand that this is tough. I could promise you a shining city on the hill, but that is not where we are right now. But here are some practical things that I will do in the first hundred days. Don't go high rhetoric, go really focused and practical and say, in the, in the first hundred days, these are the things that I want to get done. I, you know, I want to start fixing healthcare again. I want to address the po- the poverty issues. I want to address the things that are meaning that you can't Look after your family in the way you want to. That's what he needs to say. Make a retail politics offer. Still the economy, stupid. You you know what's great about this, you Americans? It's taking a brick to tell you what the next American president should say to you all. Right. But he should but, focus on justice. We, I didn't mention that. That's how you keep the justice. I 100% agree. Justice. It justice, is about justice. Justice and economic justice. But... Because we've dealt with American themes, it's only right and proper, even though a Brit has come out with a great point, we're going to end with an American on this podcast. Jared, you finally have composed yourself. You've thought, what should Biden have in his speech, sir? Uh, I just got scooped. I was going to say the same thing as as Nick said. I don't know. if I, I feel like we're investing an awful lot in Joe Biden. Like, He's an old man. He, we're talking about Biden beat Trump, but I'm not so sure that had a huge amount to do with Biden. I, I know. think Kamala behind him on the stage. That's what we're all yeah. going to look at. I, right? All right. <laughs> you know what we're going to have to do, everybody? We're going to have to go for no other reason than uh, my laptop is about to run out of power. All right. All right. I'd like to thank you all for coming on uh, to Mid-Atlantic this week. This has been obviously one of the weeks which is going to go down in not only American history and world history of what we've actually seen, unprecedented scenes. I don't want to say anything too trite, but hopefully this is going to be a moment where America pulls itself back from the brink. It realises that rhetoric does matter in terms of the divisive and ugly rhetoric which we've had from Trump for the last four years and that actually uh, for able for it to be able to govern and to move forward uh, it needs to match up to its founding ideals and to include all Americans and to realise that, that not all Americans start from the same point in life but ultimately they need to all end up in the, in, in the same place and, to ha- and have uh, the hope and the wish and the aspiration of that 
vaunted American dream. Thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic this week. Everybody, you've been an awesome panel. Uh, we'll see you all again soon, or at least we'll you'll hear us all again soon, dear listener, in approximately 14 days' time when we'll be looking at President Biden and we'll be analysing his inauguration speech. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.